Turpentine is excited to announce our new show, The AI Daily Brief, hosted by Nathaniel Whittemore. The AI Daily Brief is a daily show that covers all things AI, from legislation to new technologies in the market, to the philosophical and ethical debates around generalized intelligence. If you're looking for an edge to stay up to date on everything AI, subscribe to The AI Daily Brief at the link in the description. Our whole movement is about freedom of information, freedom of speech, freedom of thought, freedom of compute. It's very simple. And the fact that that was deemed dangerous enough, or I, I don't know, like uh, to, to, to want to suppress and, and provide the public uh, leverage over me. Uh, I don't know. That's a huge red flag for me. I think that we were becoming a voice that was going to be a problem for the executive order. And there are very special interests behind that executive order. And they wanted to, you know, send me a warning shot, I guess. I think there was, the key word that was like uh, set off alarm bells for me was public interest. And, you know, I had just crossed 50K followers. And, you know, because the, the law is you can't dox people unless you're a public figure, right? Um, and I guess I crossed into... I guess there's a threshold, right? So is it 50K? Apparently it's 50K flat, right? Um, but to me, it's like, okay, if they think they, you know, if, if they think it's of public interest and they're going to go with it, they're probably going to go with it. And so I'm, I'm kind of screwed here. I got to make, you know, I got to make a move. So um, wait, is that, is that the journo group chat decides when you become public interest or do we like, like, I'm very curious, like how they, they rational, because like, to me that if you, if you want to be anonymous, you should be able to be anonymous and doxing you, what gives them the right? This week on Upstream, I wanted to share a conversation I had with Beth Jezos originally released on our other show, Moment of Zen. Beth, whose real name is Guillaume Verdun, is a founder of Effective Accelerationism and was recently doxxed in an article in Forbes. We're also joined by Bayes Lord, another founder of Effective Accelerationism, and Nathan LeBenz, host of the podcast, The Cognitive Revolution. We discuss anonymity and doxing, the intellectual roots of effective accelerationism, the intersection between crypto and AI, and more. As a quick disclaimer, before the episode, I'm an investor in Xtropic, the stealth AI hardware startup founded by Guillaume. Please enjoy. Let's go. Um, how's that? Uh, yeah, how's it, well, how's super happy to be here. Um, it, it definitely feels weird. <laughs> it definitely feels very weird. Um, you know, it's been kind of a compartmentalized part of my life. Uh, you know, felt like a video game on my phone, more or less, right? Like a, having an alternative Twitter and having a very professional life day to day. You would never guess that uh, I'm Beth from just like day to day interactions, frankly. Um, and now the two have kind of bled into one another and they are one. And so I'm still pricing that in uh, mentally, frankly. Uh, so it's been an interesting uh, couple of days, obviously uh, a lot of inbound, uh, more DMs I can ever count. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's been a, a, a very um, surprising reaction. Uh, well, I, I, I guess not that surprising, I guess like, uh, you know, tech Twitter kind of, uh, Kind of hates the establishment media at this point, and uh, you know, uh, came to my defense, which which felt uh, felt quite good. But uh, you know, I'm happy to go into any part of it. Uh, you know how how it went down. Um, you know uh, why I started Beth. 
uh, anonymity, and anything, the startup, let me know how you want to structure this. Uh, this, yeah. So, can we start with the sorted details of how they figured it out and what voice they sampled and how that whole sorted tale played out? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there was a couple instances where there's reporters that, you know, think they have my docs and I'm just like, you know, you can't, you can't dox people, you know, I, I, you, I, I do not want you to do this. Uh, and usually that kind of kills the story to some extent, but you know, it's kind of been, you know, I've gone, I've been in the SF social scene in person. I know a bunch of investors, for example, they, some of them know, some of them have correlated the two. Um, but obviously I, I, I spent a bunch of time in Twitter spaces. I've ha I have some online lectures from my days in, in grad school in quantum computing. And really that's basically what they've, what they've correlated. Uh, they, they, they use some, I don't know, I call it CIA technology as a joke, but, uh, you know, they use some government grade, uh, technology to identify my voice, uh, you know, just because I have a 50 K follower account, uh, that speaks truth to power, I guess, I guess it tells you that, you know, we're doing something right. And that some people in the establishment, you know, want to have leverage over the leader of the grassroots movement, uh, that, you know, is for freedom and, and, and against uh, top-down control, which is very scary because that's what they like, right? So you spoke truth to power and now they're going to try to speak power to truth, so to speak. But I'm curious, yep. someone must have, um, they must have been tipped off because they didn't do an all against all voice sample. They, they started after this pairwise interaction, right? Because there was nothing online that would have suggested it. And then they confirmed it via that, I imagine. Yeah. So, so they must have like asked around, uh, you know, I mean, it's kind of like a, people know other people's doxes, right? Like there's right. kind of Twitter uh, parties in person and, and people go by their alternative name. So they know your face and eventually they correlate things, but there's kind of a, yeah, there's an unwritten rule of like, you don't, you don't like talk to reporters. You don't uh, share people's docs with other consent. I'm sure some people, you know, broke that rule, but you know, I don't know what drove them to really break the story now. Um, I think there were some latent variables there. Um, but yeah, essentially, I think it was on Thursday, uh, I get a text from some of my investors. They, they identified some of my investors. So this podcast is going to drop after we announce the round. So I'll, I'll, I'll just uh, mention investors. Uh, but yeah, so, so some of our big investors get a text uh, like, hey, I think this, you know, oh, this first reporter, I think it was Conrad, has started correlating your identity with Beth. They didn't correlate all the the company because we had a you know had a company change the name now we're extropic they hadn't correlated everything perfectly but then they censor fused across reporters internally so, so they didn't have enough to ship it on thursday but then on friday a different reporter emily joined force filings uh the track name changes um uh they went to my personal facebook to uh uh you know to identify a photo I shared like on my friend, you know, friends only Instagram of the, the party, you know, when we were on stage with Grimes and stuff like that. Uh, and uh, they correlated everything. Right. And so they just had me in this sort of checkmate. Like we have this, 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 this talk to us. We're going to ship it. And I was like, all right, I got to get in front of this. Right. Again, you know, I've been doing this deep tech startup for uh, nearly a year and a half and, you know, uh, as, as the bio says, I come from Google X, you know, we're taught to be very secretive about what we do because in deep tech, that's kind of the, the MO. 
and you know, we want to be secretive for, for longer, uh, but uh, for all sorts of reasons, including national security interest reasons, right? Like our technology is pretty out there. Um, and uh, it kind of forced our hand, right? Like it correlated all identities. Uh, and, and, and also it also kind of docks the fact that I, I had founded the startup because I was kind of, I hadn't identified that on my main account. So for me, it was kind of a, a, a mo you know, a moment of panic because, you know, I want to do what's right for my company, right? I've been working really hard on this company. Uh, we were planning announcements and a couple months from now, uh, and now we have to rush everything, right? Uh, which is, which is not great, but what I ended up doing, getting on the phone, getting in front of the story, I already knew exactly like, that's the thing with reporters. Like they're so low entropy. They are all in the same typical subspace of stories. You can predict exactly what they're going to write just from the prior that they're trying to get you. And so I just disarmed every typical attack they would try to do on EAC, trying to have second or third order guilt by association to some idea that's a derivative and another idea and uh, neutralize that uh, essentially entirely. Um, I see we have Baselord joining. There you go. What's up? <laughs> uh, what's up, Baze? Can you guys hear me? What's up? Yeah, 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 we can. Awesome. Hey. Oh, we have Nathan as well. Oh, it's good. all right, here we go. What's up? Hey, what's um, up, guys? What's up, what's up? Yeah, good to see you again. Not bad. Great to see <laughs> <Yeah>. you. <laughs> I guess now uh, with real names uh, in my case. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so yeah, it's been an interesting, uh, you know, I guess 48 hours uh, dealing with this. Um, I think overall, uh, I mean, we can get into why I was Anon uh, for, for various reasons. Um, but overall, it seems like it was positive to the point that where uh, some are like have a conspiracy theory that this was planted. But uh, any, I, I, I had I had that you. theory, Guillaume. I I, I thought I thought sure. we were all getting conned, and you were actually dropping this because I was going to ask the question: Do you think you would raise on a higher or lower valuation now than you did the, this round? I would bet uh, the valuation would go up, actually. Definitely higher. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly, right. <laughs> but I mean, I didn't. I want to raise round, uh, you know, raise around just uncorrelated. I I didn't necessarily initially disclose to my investors. I didn't want that to be part of the the price or anything like that. I didn't know where it would go, right? I didn't want to correlate the two identities. It was really like orthogonal. And now my hand was forced to, to correlate the two and own it. And so I got in front of it. And of course I'm going to harness any hand I'm dealt. I'm just, that's, that's what you're supposed to do. Right. And now, now we've harnessed it, um, uh, you know, pretty well, I, I would say, we'll see how it plays out of course. Um, and, and now there's this conspiracy that it was, it was planted, but you know, in my case, again, I just wanted to control the narrative. I knew the story was going to be really bad if I didn't get on the phone and, and, you know, I, I, I actually, I wanted to stall them. I wanted to give them enough content so that we had a couple more hours. We adjusted our website, uh, to have a pseudo launch the day of, so, you know, shout out to the team for being so adaptive and, and, uh, you know, as of, as of the moment of airing this podcast, we'll probably have announced, uh, the round on for, for extropic. So we rushed that over the weekend. Um, so, yeah, definitely not planted. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, it was always sort of a a trap, right? In game theory, you you want to make it like you you want to make sure that like the, the incentive was to not dox me, right? For most people, because they knew that if they did dox me, now I could go on these podcasts with my real face, with my credentials. I I could talk to potentially politicians, and I have credentials that have some some firepower. 
and now more of a problem. So they kind of messed up. It's their fault, really. It was a trap to some extent, but, you know, I tried my best to, you know, stay anon. But, you know, again, voice identification technology, I'm not going to use a voice changer on Twitter spaces like every day. Are you kidding me? Like, I'm not going to do that. And I, I would imagine maybe the first podcast we did, they, they used that voice and correlated it with my YouTube lectures. But that's probably how they got me. Yeah. Can I still call you Beth? Sure, it's easier. <laughs> Gil or Beth. Gil is like the Americanized version of Guillaume. Very French, French Canadian. So you got me. So super uh, simple question. Did yeah. the reporter, journalist, whatever we want to call this person, did they give you a rationale why they thought it was a moral imperative to dox you? I think there was, the key word that was like uh, set off alarm bells for me was public interest and you know i had just crossed 50k followers and you know because because the, the law is you can't dox people unless you're a public figure right um and i guess i crossed into i guess there's a threshold right so is it 50k apparently it's 50k flat right um but to me it's like okay if they think they you know if, if they think it's of public interest and they're gonna go with it they're probably gonna go with it and so i'm i'm kind of screwed here i gotta make you know, I got to make a move. So um, wait, is that is that the journo group chat decides when you become public interest? Or do we like, like, I, I'm very curious, like how they, they rational, because like, to me that if you, if you want to be anonymous, you should be able to be anonymous and doxing you. What, what gives them the right? Because because if I was to go put the, I don't know, the address of that reporter online, and maybe now we're arguing over whether or not an address is too far. Like what, what, what point is, is too far and then who gets to decide that, that that's my question. And I don't think anyone has given an answer outside of I'm a journalist. So I have a special badge. You used to have blue checks. Now they don't. And then they get to decide who, who can be a non versus not. But if you were to do it to them, that that's, that's harassment. Right. Right. Well, I mean, to me, I was, you know, mostly focused, uh, eyes on the ball. You know, I have to, my prime responsibility is to my company. And, um, I was just concerned like, Hey, we're, you know, getting announced. We have to announce and, and get our stuff together. Uh, you know, without preparation, without uh, heads up only a few hours. So, um, you know, it, it, it seems like we were, it, it, really, it really seems like we planned this, but we, we truly didn't. Uh, so, but I'm just glad we adapted given the, the circumstances. Um, but yeah, overall, I think like, I mean, this was clearly wrong, uh, what they did. And, you know, I, you know, there's not that much to have leverage over me. It's like, okay, cool. I, I used to, you know, work in quantum computing and, and have, you know, a normal ish background. Um, but you know, maybe some other people that are trying to speak truth to power and have their voices heard and want to use anonymity as a tool to speak truth to power, uh, you know, cause there's a sort of power asymmetry. So you kind of equalize that when you're anon, uh, they can't, they can't do that anymore. Right. If they, they, they fear getting doxxed. And so it's kind of like, they want to make an example out of me. Right. And I mean, I think there was, uh, I think there was a congresswoman at a uh, con uh, conference, uh, a defense conference that explicitly named out EAC as a sort of dangerous movement that uh, needs to be suppressed with AI. That's the tweet. I'm not sure if it's correct. I have still have to watch uh, uh, that clip. But 
to me, that sounds very dystopian. Like our whole movement is about freedom of information, freedom of speech, freedom of thought, freedom of compute. It's very simple. And the fact that that was deemed dangerous enough, or I, I don't know, like uh, to, to, to want to suppress and, and provide the public uh, leverage over me. Uh, I don't know. That's a huge red flag for me. I think that we were becoming a voice that was going to be a problem for the executive order. And there are very special interests behind that executive order. And they wanted to, you know, send me a warning shot, I guess. That is my theory. But I, one thing I couldn't understand, and, and, and maybe, Beth, I just I haven't read all your tweets. I, I couldn't understand, A, you, you obviously have a very distinguished academic background. In fact, I was reading your, your quantum TensorFlow paper on the way in. Ages ago, I worked in like experimental quantum computing like 15 years ago, back when it was like no in its total infancy. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I, I knew a lot of the theorists back then, like Michael Nielsen, and I actually dated you like MP. Anyhow, love story. Back in the early days of computing, um, but obviously wasn't really smart enough to continue. But in any case, I was reading it with, with a lot of pleasure. And it's, it's odd that they would consider this a bad thing. It's, off, it's obviously given a lot of intellectual credibility to EAC movement, right? Like your background is it's pretty good, right? Like it's pretty distinguished. Like you've, you've done a lot, right? And I, you know, you, a lot of co-authors and it's like, that's why I thought the conspiracy, and I don't really believe it to be clear, but I thought maybe he actually like actually provoked Forbes to do this because this is like a brilliant thing. Like you bring actually so much positive social capital to the movement. You come off as like this edgy hip, you know, poster who kind of had, you know, <laughs> was pulling the world's tail. It's like, I, yeah. what's the downside to this? Like, I don't understand. Do you, yeah. Yeah. For me, me. Yeah. I can let you know why I, I was anonymous. I mean, originally I was at Google X working on some pretty right. secretive technologies. I had right. access to, you know, the top of the food chain there. Right. Um, so I, you know, I couldn't necessarily tweet uh, anything like political and stuff like that. My tweets were watched, which is normal. Um, but, you know, I, I wanted to have just a, a separate account where I can really let myself self go kind of like offload thoughts. And also I reached a point in quantum computing where I was respected enough that People would cheer me on or they would approve of my ideas or whatever. Oh, so smart, whatever. And that was kind of like, kind of annoying me that like, do they like my ideas or do they just want a job or something? Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to put my ideas in the arena, right? It's like, I, I just wanted people to evaluate my ideas for their own, not look at credentials, not like weigh my opinions dependent on status. I just wanted my ideas to be evaluated on their own and, and to me, like growing a movement and, and having ideas resonate from scratch, uncorrelated from my I, original identity, like, I mean, of course, that, that, that felt like, you know, it felt like New Game Plus, as, as we say in video games, right? You restart the video game from scratch, but you have kind of all your intellect and memory in your gear, but you're, you're, you're trying to rank up again. So I started from scratch, an account with like no followers and grew it to, to 50K before now, now my... my there's a stat boost from, from the, the status signals of, of credentials. Uh, I, I personally very much hate credentialism. I think I would have been an entrepreneur five years earlier if it wasn't for credentialism, especially in deep tech. Um, I, I got very frustrated when I tried to do a startup at 25 and, you know, I would get like, who are you? Uh, and, uh, you know, I just went through big tech, the gauntlet of grad school and big tech to, to prove myself and prove to others that I can, I, I can do things uh, so that I can raise the capital to realize the visions I had. Um, and so, you know, I've, I've, I've always, uh, I think Bayes is, 
is on the same page here. You know, we always wanted sort of like EAs is all about like gatekeeping, gaslighting, status signaling, at least to us from our perspective. Uh, and, you know, EAC was about kind of bottom up. Everybody has uh, access to opportunity to build, no gatekeeping, no sort of status signaling. It's all about building, right? Um, and we want to maintain that. And I think that like I was afraid that if I, you know, used any sort of creds that would dissuade people, you know, from participating or feeling like they can participate. Cause the thing is everybody starts somewhere. And I was once, you know, that kid that was really smart, had a lot of ambition, but didn't have the creds. I was just straight out of school and nobody gave me a chance. And I want, you know, the next, you know, genius to be able to, you know, start building their dreams right away. And I, I just personally very much hate gatekeeping. Um, even though nowadays I've gone through the gauntlet, I've paid my dues. Now a lot of doors are open for me. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm just trying to kind of pay it forward in a way that, you know, young, my younger self would be appreciative. Um, so, so, so really that's why I was anonymous. I just wanted to get, you know, get my ideas evaluated in the arena in an uncorrelated fashion from my, my credentials. Hey, We'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. If you don't already subscribe to Turpentine's industry-leading newsletters, like our new daily AI newsletter, Emergent Behavior, or Media Empires, you should. But that's not what I'm here to tell you about. The platform we use to power these newsletters is called Beehive, and it's excellent. First of all, it was started by the same early team who helped build Morning Brew into a $75 million newsletter business. And they built Beehive to offer that same powerful functionality to anyone sending emails. From essayists to business owners, the platform is beautiful, their text editor is intuitive, and they help you scale your audience with custom growth features. Beehive has powerful tools to help you monetize your content. You can easily launch paid subscriptions or pursue an advertising model. The Beehive platform will even connect you to premium brands to sponsor your newsletter. Not only do we use them, but thousands of the top newsletters in the world also use them, like Milk Road, Blockworks, The Lindy Newsletter, and so many more. Beehive's founder hooked up upstream listeners with a sweet deal. Get 20% off for three months with code UPSTREAM. Visit beehive.com, that's B-E-E-H-I-I-V.com to get started. What's next for, for Yak? Where, where do you see it going from, from here? Yeah, well, now that uh, I guess I, I, I am doxxed, right? One, one, one thing that was kind of stopping um, any sort of like organizations or incorporations of any kind of any sort of org or institute was that, you know, we're like going to register with our real names uh, somewhere, uh, these institutions, and that would have doxxed us. Um, so now we have that opportunity. Will we take that opportunity? TBD. But personally, I mean, I think, I think right now there's sort of a lack of theory and, and, and um, uh, educational material for people to understand uh, complex systems and self-adapting uh, systems like capitalism. Um, and our whole thesis is that bottom-up bottom up self-adaptation is superior to top-down control. It's very easy to convince a crowd, like, put me in charge. I will do this action. It will have this impact. It's much harder to convince a crowd of like, hey, if we all act in these microscopic exchange laws, the emergent behaviors that like we have a highly functioning society, Right. Uh, and the more sort of research you create there, uh, the better uh, and more educational material. So we might uh, start a, a research institution there and fund some grants. 
Um, I would love to fund some um, open source hackers. Obviously, we believe in uh, open source software for AI. We think that open source software um, is a hedge against the oligopolization of AI, right? There's a couple of players right now that obviously now that they're in the lead, they have all sorts of interests in closing down AI, outlawing open source models. So, you know, sort of like ensuring freedom of compute is something uh, we might create orgs to, to um, uh, sponsor hackers, but also uh, uh, potentially, you know, have some influence in, in Washington, right? Those are some next step, obviously like growing the movement on Twitter, that's gonna keep going, also known as X. Um, and, uh, you know, overall, yes, uh, you know, it gives, it gives people an attack vector now that um, I am doxxed, right? That is unfortunate. Um, but I do very strongly believe in what we uh, talk about in EAC and, you know, I am willing to go all the way, whatever it takes right to uh, uh defend these ideas and i won't let sort of this this sort of pressure or reputational pressure affect me i think i'm quite robust against such attacks and if they want to come after me then you know bring it i guess <laughs> yeah i can i ask I one question to... eric sure um please yeah so I, I mean, one th you mentioned one thing, there, Guillaume, that I found that I, that I found sort of. Sorry, I'm a Francophile, so I'm going to use your full French name. <laughs> yeah, that's good. I, and and well, and man. also mention and also mention the Prix Goncourt, uh, completely yeah. out of context. Um, sorry, that's one of the running gags on the podcast. Um, <laughs> you you mentioned one thing about the open. So it's funny. So Dan and I come from the crypto world, whereas you know, right. decentralization is like this religious mantra that I think is often overexpressed, actually. And in fact, I think Dan, I think you quoted it in Farcaster, right? Of like sufficiently decentralized, right? Mm -hmm. Which is almost like, you know sufficiently a trinity or something like it's enough of a certain yeah. theological concept but no further but i always found ai and this i'm very much seeing that world from the outside to be clear right? it's like i'm kind of a tourist but it always seems to me the actually to be totally centralizing and i think the hijinks you saw at open ai with literally the little junior high school drama between three people somehow wrecking the cutting edge of ai is something that could like literally couldn't happen in crypto for, for a bunch of reasons i mean you might cite the example of sbf but then Dan would instantly throw a fit and say, but that was actually a centralized exchange, not a decentralized exchange, which is true, actually. Right. And in the, and, and the fullest decentralized version, like speaking of anonymity, like, so I work in a crypto company. We, we've had an anon employee that I didn't know who they were and I would just pay them. Right. And, and we've, we have, we work with the anon founders of a protocol and they never turn their video on. We have no idea who these people are. And yet we still do business with them and transact. Wow. Right. So that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's not even that weird. And then, then I've met them also in person. Like it's a similar thing. Like you mentioned earlier how like, you know, it's really weird that these journalists are such losers. I did this tweet interview site that's like, these people are losers, right? Like they never actually go to the parties where you meet, you yeah. know, Beth or who, like I know a bunch of Twitter anons. I think we all do, right? And you meet yeah. them in person, you know who they are. They introduce themselves. This isn't yeah. a big secret. It's almost like that meme where like the losers in the corner and saying, hey, do you know that Guillaume is Beth? And like everyone dances like, dude, we know, shut the fuck up. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah who cares, right? Exactly. Like, it's like, it's like such a loser thing to say, right? Um, but don't you think like AI goes the other way, right? Like. I, just as an example, like I'm, I, I was using ChatGPT today. Okay. I'm pro AI. My best friend is an AI, right? But, you know, the fact that OpenAI instantly does a deal with Microsoft and instantly bakes itself into like literally the most octopus like corporation in human history, it's a little weird, right? It's a little bit like pinning to mm -hmm. the other side of the spectrum instantly. So I'm just curious mm -hmm. if, if you feel that, that that binarization of it is valid and feel free to say that I'm full of shit. Um, or like if there is another op AI vision that you're sort of stretching towards that maybe is a little bit more decentralized. Um, and not so naturally sort of centrifugal yeah. to, you know. I, I think that 
um, you know, self-organizing systems tend to organize themselves in hierarchies, right? So it's sort of like, um, you know, you can imagine a tree or a sort of fractal, right? Uh, sort of structure you have, uh, you know, your cells form, uh, your body, and then, you know, you have groups of humans form uh, a family and then a corporation and then a city and then a nation and so on. Right. So there's a hierarchical structure to organization and there's this hierarchical structure to sort of, uh, control, right? There's, there's some control system at the head of your body. It's called your brain. There's a control system at the head of the family and the, at the head of the corporation nation and, 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 and so on, you know, it's all about, uh, the balance between, you know, it's, it's all about engineering fault tolerance to corruption, right? If you have a one to all connection in, in terms of control, you have a control system that affects all the nodes in the system. That node has a fault. The whole system has a problem, just like open AI, you, de you can decapitate the leadership and, you know, not, not physically, uh, but you know, uh, and, and, and suddenly you're in control of the organization. And now everyone that had, that were using their APIs have a problem, right? Cause they have an ideologue. They didn't, they didn't vote for in control of, you know, a product that they depend on. Right. And so decentralization is about sort of, uh, uh, diffusing, uh, obviously having decentralized, uh, loci or lo plural locus of control, uh, so that, you know, you have fault tolerance to, to corruption of, of these control nodes. Um, of course, like having a fully greedy algorithm where everything's disordered is not optimal. Right. So it's all a balance between the two. It's a balance between centralization and decentralization. That is what is like fundamentally optimal. The reason we're fighting for decentralization is because we think, you know, right now there's a tendency towards over centralization of AI and we're very worried about that. And so we need to push things in the opposite uh, direction at the moment. I think that fundamentally right now there's a lot of alpha in just scraping the whole internet centralizing it and having centralized training. I think at some point that alpha will be saturated, right? Most companies will have a model that compresses basically most of the data that's on the internet. Uh, and then you're going to have AI that seeks to capture data from the real world. And for that, you have to be central decentralized. You got to, and, and you want to have the intelligence perhaps at the edge. We're not there yet. There's still alpha from like centralizing data and, and soaking all, it all in and, and having one big model that that compresses it all because intelligence is more or less compression. Um, but I think over time, we're going to see decentralization in the form of sort of like, first of all, you're going to have a personal assistant, you know, like Humane, like Tab, or I don't know, these could be all sorts of AR assistants, I'm sure. Uh, at first, like you're going to have, you know, the, the, the intelligence is going to be in the cloud, but the data acquisition is going to be on the edge. But eventually people are going to want their own compute uh, that that they own and control, I would imagine. Uh, and, you know, maybe there's compute in the robot directly, right? It's not, there's no need for a connection to a network. Um, I think that's going to be sort of the, the decentralize decentralizing effect right there. Uh, and, and, you know, you can have federated learning over a fleet. I think people are working on this, obviously right now, in order to train the biggest one model to rule them all, uh, the centralized approach, centralized compute and centralization of data is has a huge advantage. I think a big problem as well is that right now the centralized approaches, they scrape the whole internet, uh, which includes your data, and then they rent it back to you, right? Bit by bit. And I think the future is about 
crediting people for the data to contribute to AI systems and sort of distributed ownership, right? I mean, they're, they're starting to do this with sort of GPTs, uh, OpenAI, but, you know, it's just, it's just an early start. But I, I, I do think there's sort of, a, I think there, there's going to be a very interesting wave of startups right now, uh, like from crypto migrating to being infrastructure to align incentives for AI. Um, we're not a crypto company, by the way. Uh, just, 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 you know, people thought we were going to launch a coin. Uh, we, we're not a crypto company at the moment. I have nothing against crypto. I love it personally. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think that um, crypto being sort of the value exchange network and, and programmable incentives for kind of collaboration in AI, right, to, to, to have sort of decentralized uh, research labs, I think, I think that's going to be a very potent application of crypto. And it's just something I fundamentally want to encourage because I think that if we have a future where there's only a few companies that are like government, that have the government mandated monopoly or oligopoly to serve AI models, then you have a sort of like single point where a few people get to control the cultural priors of these LLMs, what they're allowed to say. So it's an information supply chain attack because people won't ask each other, what is the truth? They're going to start asking the LLM, what is the truth? And if, if you, if you change what it says, then you're controlling people's sources of information and you're controlling people. So it's cybernetic control of the population through this information supply chain attack by proxy, by, by, uh, you know, saying that, oh, well, we're responsible. We should be put in control of what these, uh, LLMs are allowed to say. Right. Um, so we definitely want to fight against that. And one solution is to erode their market power by having alternative solutions that are just as good or, or, or nearing the same, same level. Of course, that's not going to happen if we don't leverage sort of, uh, capitalist-like technologies for value, for incentive alignment, right? Um, and uh, yeah, very bullish on this space. Again, not personally involved at the moment. Uh, I, we're building a hardware company uh, for AI. That's fun, fundamentally new. We can get into that at some point today. Um, but uh, yeah, overall, very, very worried about the over-centralization of AI. Started making my voice heard online. Um, and I think, uh, you know, uh, there was an event where I got to interact with the chair of the FTC. Maybe that got noticed. Maybe that got me in trouble. I don't know. Uh, but you know, there are ways that our voices is, is being heard in, in, in Washington. Um, and you know, our, our point is that, uh, this sort of, uh, fear mongering, uh, and, and doom is really sort of, uh, a, a very nice cover for very subversive, Regular, regulatory capture by the incumbents, right? Like, oh, AI is dangerous, put us in control. We're the only ones who are responsible. Uh, you know, you're not allowed to have more compute than we do. You're not allowed to have open source models that would, you know, erode our market power and our pricing power because uh, they're, they're dual use, they're dangerous. Uh, that's, all, that's all bullshit, right? They, they, they cooked, uh, they cooked uh, those, those proposed uh, regulations uh, for their own advantage. Right. Um, and so we got, yeah, we got to fight. I mean, they're going to push, they're going to try to push these regulations through. Um, and so that's why we're not, we're not stopping the fight. And I don't think, I don't think my docs is stopping anything in terms of like making our voices heard. In fact, it might accelerate things. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. 
I mean, I'd love to deepen into the, the crypto AI overlap, Guillaume, thing that you hit on. But if we want to move on to the regular, because I, you know, again, I'm seeing the AI world from the outside. And obviously I, I use it and I've been watching, you know, some of Karpathy's videos and stuff. But like what you just said, right? This business of paying data owners for their trading sets, like, fortunately, we do have a public ledger of ownership <laughs> that's natively financialized with an underlying value model that does this very well. And in fact, some people are even working on blockchain attribution solutions that figure <laughs> out where this thing came from because this other person used it and it's worth X amount. So I've often right. thought about, like, if there is some sort of crypto AI collision, which I think is inevitable, like, but like, just to shoot that the idea down just for one second, like, mm -hmm. will it like, why wouldn't you say pay Reddit for its data, like literally in a direct deal, rather than all this like crypto craziness? Like, will it ever be the like, this is like the like the classic, not to say this is a bad idea, again, but the classic yeah. bad ad tech idea from web two was like, oh, pay users for their data. Well, Brave mm -hmm. does that. And it turns out that data is worth $3 a year, right? And Brave is a great product. And lots of people use it. I use it, but they don't use it because of the $3, right? They use it for a bunch of other reasons. And the data that you actually own that you express with your browser just isn't worth enough. So it, even if you could get things down to like literally the micro ETH, like would I care that I'm getting paid because the model is getting trained, trained on my Substack? And even you could figure out like literally what is the actual value per query that my data contributed to? And I'm sure the incrementality of that is super hard to figure out, but you, you guys would know better than I would. But even assuming you could figure it out, that's going to be literally worth like 30 cents a year. So would it even make sense to, to wire all that together? Well, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I've had some various ideas in this space. Uh, I guess I could just broadcast them, uh, YOLO. Um, <laughs> um, essentially, I think, I think you can price the value of data according to um, how much information gain uh, the, the, the system gets from your data. Um, and there's some very specific mathematics for that. And that can give you a share of uh, a model's future profits, right? So similar to how, you know, eukaryotic cells, you know, own a fractional ownership of the success of the greater organism, right, through DNA. And that's better than prokaryotic cells like bacteria. I think that the future is people owning fractions of, of a model, right, according to what they contributed to it. Uh, and I just realized that, you know, I'm, I'm, there might be 10 different tokens now that spawn using this idea. But um, I don't know. For me, it's like I have more ideas than uh, I can act upon uh, in, in one lifetime. So I, I'd just rather broadcast them. And, you know, this is something Baze and I have been talking, you know, we, we considered uh, doing something in this space. But, you know, I think uh, at the moment we have uh, our hands full with uh, changing the entire AI hardware software stack from scratch beyond the transistor. Right, which is a significant undertaking. So, um, but yeah, uh, I, I'm I'm really I think I think there's really going to be some something interesting that comes out, um, and hopefully it can erode away the power from sort of the centralized players, um, and not not that like you know they're necessarily nefarious, but you know every every meta organism's control systems acts in the meta-organisms best interests, right? It's like the real politic, right? And that, I, I think that's the thing about Yak that is that we like we, we cut through the bullshit, right? It's like every agent and subsystem is gonna act in its own best interest. It's gonna do whatever it needs to do in order to uh, secure resources to, and, or utility towards its own growth, right? And acquisition of resources, period. 
That's just how everything works in nature. That's just reality. Uh, and it's like, okay, now that we have this reality, how do we create the, the system that harnesses this to create a sort of emergent altruism where we reach greater prosperity, find new optima of the techno capital machine that, uh, you know, allows us to support more humans on earth and to scale civilization to the stars. Right. And so, um, anyways, I, I, I got, uh, into my typical like Twitter space, um, uh, ramble there, but, um, yeah, I, I, I do think that, uh, again, super huge opportunities in the interface of AI, uh, and crypto. And that's partly why, uh, you know, there's kind of been a, a sort of, uh, an informal sort of handshake between crypto and, and EAC, uh, you know, um, uh, 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 Brian Armstrong, um, uh, you know, they put out an ad for Coinbase. It was basically an EAC ad, uh, frankly, uh, really we're kind of fighting the, the D cells and the, the centralizers, right. The incumbents, those that seek, um, in, in to, to control everything and to cause inflation to secretly tax you. And they're scared of sort of bottom up decentralized revolutions that, that they don't control that, uh, causes, uh, deflationary uh, pressure, right? Um, and so, uh, you know, there, there is interests in deceleration. There, there are kind of uh, uh, interests of the control s systems that are kind of greedy at the cost of what they are controlling. And it's kind of, uh, we're kind of the, the, the autoimmune response, if you will, to the, the control systems, right? Uh, and, uh, you know, we're, we're causing a bit of inflammation to the brain now, uh, or the the brain of whatever this this whole thing is, uh, and uh, it seems like uh, you know they tried to apply uh, a Forbes uh, anti-inflammatory pill, if you will. Um, so, yeah. yeah, you know, you know what EAC reminds me of, Guillaume. Have, have you read uh, John Perry Barlow's uh, cyberspace essay from back in the day, uh, like in the nineties, way before your time, probably? Okay, but I, I, you have based on. Um, do you, do you remember it fondly? I remember reading it when I was young and getting into the internet and I find it was the most amazing thing. Um, I think I was only shown it like, uh, two months ago, but very base and definitely has like vibe, vibe overlap. And at the time, right? Like the internet was forming as like cyberspace, which now seems almost cliche or cringe almost was like this edgy space that you would meet. And he has this line in which he, he basically addresses it to the weary giants of flesh and steel, i.e. the industrial giants to which the internet represented an alternative. And I think a lot of EAC reminds me of that same rebellion, of course, except the weary giants of flesh and steel are actually of silicon now. <laughs> it's actually the old internet that has gotten kind of old and boomerish to which this is a rebellion. Part of the reason why I'm in crypto, I came from the sort of fang world and working in all that world. And I felt that that was all slowing down and becoming the man, actually. And crypto was like the only thing that reminded me of the early Web2 days in which it was like, like if if you don't have people coming after you and getting severely pissed off because you're building something, you're building shit. I mean, to be, or something that's like not important, right? Like if you read the story of Uber, like literally every taxi commission, people in Paris were kicking the shit out of Uber drivers, you know, all of Spain shut down Airbnb. Like, you know, if, if you don't have major governments pissed off at what you're doing, you're actually not building anything particularly important, right? And there wasn't a lot, there isn't a lot, in my opinion, in internet consumer outside of some of the things we discussed that meet that. So I, anyway, it just reminds me of that vibe of the cyberspace vibe. And I think, obviously, I think we need more of that. So it's cool. We're, we're definitely the most uh, cyberpunk uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> movement out there. Uh, hence the, hence the Arasaka <laughs> tower vibes here. And, you know, we, we had the, the party um, with, with uh, Grimes for the, you know, after the OpenAI 
dev day and the point was, you know, keep AI open, right? And, uh, you know, it, it's got to feel like a bit of a rebellion because it kind of is, right? And then you have the engineers from these, these big players, they come to the party and they're like, man, this is freaking cool. I kind of want to join the rebellion. I don't want to work for the empire. What, what the hell? How do I join, right? And so that's how it starts. So um, we'll try to keep that going in many ways. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely... <laughs> It, it, it definitely very, it, it feels like we are in the cyberpunk future. It's, it's kind of been uh, surreal how we've uh, gotten here, frankly. Um, and uh, yeah, no, I'm just grateful to, to be here uh, at this yeah. point in history, frankly. It's an exciting time. To, to quote the Steve Jobs line, why join the Navy when you can be a pirate? Which is something you used to be able to say about Apple, but I don't think that's the case anymore. And I have a little bit of experience there. That's so, the thing, yes. right? Like, <laughs> what is... <laughs> What is the sort of mind virus that infects organizations, that decelerates everything, adds way too much process, way too much bureaucracy, and then it grows kind of like a cancer. It's kind of like middle management kind of grows and eventually takes over from the founders. And now it's kind of like this, you know, Borg of some kind that, you know, these corp these huge corporations, you know, have decisions by committee for everything. There's tons of process. It's just very hard to get anything done. And, and really so, the answer to that is disruption, right? You, you got to have a free market. You got to have free market competition. And if uh, an incumbent is too slow, it gets disrupted by a startup. We saw that with OpenAI, right? Frankly, I don't, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, I can't say too much about, about, about Google, but, you know, clearly there was a sort of slowdown in its, its speed and the, the talent eventually saw that and sort of migrated to, to startups, right? Uh, at least for, for AI. And, and now they're getting disrupted and they're kind of in trouble. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, but if, if they remove that mechanism where uh, bottom-up challengers can, 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 can dethrone and compete with incumbents, uh, if they remove that ability, then we don't have this kind of self-correcting mechanism and we'll just live with kind of monopolies that are that are not shipping great product and, and then everybody, the consumer suffers and we don't want that, right? And so to me, it's kind of like, you know, you have sort of like the doomers pushing for centralization and control and then you have the, you know, EAC, pro-freedom folks that are more about uh, antitrust, right? Like it's about monopolization. And so I think there's an interesting political uh, landscape shaping now. I think, you know, it seems like some Democrats are more on the side of like AI safety uh, so far. Uh, and allegedly, Trump has said he would cancel the Biden executive order on AI. You know, EAC is not partisan per se, we're, but we're kind of like, we have an issue that we care about, which is the freedom to compute, the freedom to do to, to, to advance technology. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, you know, I don't know if you guys want to get into, uh, you know, 2024 discussions, but, uh, Oh, we yeah. never talk about politics here. Guillaume. Oh, never, okay. never, never, never. I'm totally joking. <laughs> we do it all the fucking time. Okay. Good, good. I will. I, I, well, go ahead. Good. Good. Oh yeah. No, just on the question of like, well, what, what, why big tech is so bad, right? Like, uh, I think part of it, I won't really relitigate the whole thing. Uh, the, the episode we recorded earlier today and the, the piece that Nadia and I put together, uh, like talks about some of what I think about this, but I do think part of the issue here is just simply like, do you have actual improvements that you can build uh, onto things in the world, uh, onto systems in the world? 
And I think like there was kind of this, this like gr- growing um, lack of capacity to actually do things that were, you know, sufficiently ambitious. And then also like when you have like the, the effect of a bunch of capital accruing, companies naturally end up becoming kind of inward facing, navel gazing. People are like incrementalists and it's just kind of like locally optimal for people to kind of be a little bit lazy, you know, L plus one until you, until you retire, you know, you, you know, uh, you know, people are being obsessed with doing fire and they want to like ride around in a van or whatever, instead of like, uh, build, build cool shit. And, uh, yeah, I think part of the, the shift here is just that, um, we have a bunch of new technologies coming online and new capacity, uh, with AI, especially. And, uh, yeah, people just see that, uh, it's time to 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 try to dissipate that alpha and, and, and do the work. There's real work to do. By the way, have you have you given me the betting odds of like which fan company came out or came out with the biggest open source dedication to AI and it being Facebook? I I don't know if I would have bet on my former employer to be honest. Um, or I don't know if, I mean, I don't know if you agree with that characterization. But it, no, you got it. Makes careful. a lot of sense. These, these Frenchmen, right? they're so based. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all the AI Frenchmen, they're all for pro freedom. But I, I, I mean, look, every agent acts in its own about the, you know, self interest, I think that, you know, if you're number three or four, right, I think right now, the leaders are really open AI anthropic, uh, I would say, I think that's not a controversial statement. Um, you know, if you're kind of competing for number three or four, like, I think the, the point is, you want to kind of equalize the playing field and kind of band together to try to beat you know, the top two, right? And so I think that's the thing about open source is it kind of groups everyone together to collaborate on on iterating on, on the open source architecture and tooling and products to compete and erode away the market leverage of, of the, the, you know, the top players, which, you know, they're eating, I don't know, 90% of API calls, if not more, uh, if you include Anthropic, frankly. Um, and so, you know, I, 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 I think... Uh, yeah, I don't know. It just makes sense uh, from a fundamental standpoint. You know, Facebook um, has a lot of data and they have a lot of compute. They have a lot of great researchers, and you know, I'm I'm really happy they're contributing to open source. But hopefully, they don't they don't stop. But at the same time, you know, it does cost them a lot. It does cost them a lot, and it's kind of like they're 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 giving to the community this this value. Uh, at the same time, people are open sourcing models. They're not open sourcing the training code. Right. So it's not fully open source AI. Right. So they still have their moat of like how to train these things. And we saw, uh, you know, a couple engineers that did Llama left and then started Mistral because they have that sort of artisanal know-how of how to train these beasts. And, and then they raised hundreds of millions right out the gate. Uh, so it's very valuable knowledge. So they're still keeping some alpha there, uh, which is good. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. Um, but, you know, I, I, I do think that uh, it's kind of like, communist AI to some extent to have like just open source, everything, everything's free, like data costs money, compute costs money, engineers that are talented costs money, uh, more and more, in fact. Uh, and, uh, until we have a sort of proper, like decentralized slash centralized system of incentive alignment, I think frankly with through crypto rails, uh, I, I, I don't, I think it's gonna be tough for open source to, to really, uh, compete with uh, the big centralized players, right? Um, just like how much capital is being injected in API calls towards uh, the top players, you know, pales in comparison to the rest. But, um, you know, if there's actual capital flow 
like that gets reinvested then in improving open source models uh, beyond just us scrolling on Instagram, then then I think that's um, I think that has a shot. So, so you think so you think crypto is actually critical to survival of open source models? That's interesting. You think that's yeah yeah I, I haven't been very public about that, but uh, it's kind of a thesis I've formed over over time. Um, I mean, I don't know if it's necessarily crypto like. I would say like crypto like like thinking, right? You could just use like Stripe if you want, you know, uh, but some sort of way for people to collaborate on models and pooling data, compute and capital to train these things, right? And know how, right? Well, if I could <clears throat> interject, the greatest accumulation of GPU uh, that is not in a data center was the Ethereum network until they moved to proof of stake, right? And that was a crypto economic system that worked pretty damn well. Um, maybe Bitcoiners would tell you different, although they have their own set of compute, uh, a little less useful for AI. But, but I do think like we don't even have to imagine it. It's not science fiction. Like it, it, it did exist. Like that, that's actually what NVIDIA's stock price was originally bumped up on was crypto before obviously AI is taking it to new heights. So I would imagine a world where everyone's gaming PC and, and maybe you just don't get to the level of compute that you can with the you know eight H series in data centers. But if you were to take every you know, GPU around the world and then be able to kind of do something like SETI at home um, in a kind of decentralized manner, maybe maybe you do actually have uh, this kind of, you can't go drone strike the, the data center because you know I, I am the data center, come, come and take my GPU, right? Yeah, I, I think that is the dream. I think that at least right now in the way we're doing these uh, big models, you need, you know, paralyzed high bandwidth multi GPUs. Um, it's very hard to shard the models without a significant slowdown over the network, right? And if an, an alternative is like a thousand times slower or more pricey than, than the centralized incumbent, like in the free market, like people want to support decentralization, but if the product is not like competitive with the centralized player, like at the end of the day, people pay for what works and has the right cost benefit analysis. But, um, I think that you know there's going to there's going to have to be sort of algorithmic breakthroughs, but you can imagine where people instead of having just a gaming PC, they have maybe you know bigger boxes that have beefier GPUs, and, and they can run maybe a whole single node. Yeah, like uh, this is what George is training. working on, right? George, George Hotz, right? Uh, yeah, so George Hotz is working on kind of the the hardware infrastructure for that, right? Selling beefy GPU uh, GPU boxes of several GPUs. I don't know if he's uh, what he it was like many... a, a petaflop. A petaflop at home is that the idea right 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 yeah. and, and that seems like an attractive kind of like node to run potentially a future protocol i would encourage a lot of people to to do the research here i think there just needs to be a lot more players in this space and i think the ai people you know are gonna have to talk to the crypto people and there's gonna be kind of uh gonna be a moment there where, where there's gonna be there's going to have to be uh, bridges built there in terms of the language. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic. I don't know. That's my prediction. I, th I think the merging of, of crypto and AI, uh, you know, this kind of anti-centralization uh, of AI movement is, is going to kind of combine forces with crypto. Um, again, I don't own anything in any protocol uh, right now. <laughs> uh, so uh, not talking my book, just like my prediction. But um, yeah, no, I, I, I think it's exciting. Personally, I, I'm I'm really worried about you know okay cool like great we've decentralized the algorithms and the sort of like distillation process of AI like distilling data into neural weights 
right? That is the software process that we're talking about. That's what OpenAI does. That's what Anthropic does. Great. Maybe we figured out how to decentralize that. You're still buying your GPUs from the same supply chain that is down to, you know, NVIDIA, TSMC, ASML, right? ASML is, for those not familiar, is, you know, the, the, the machines that do the extreme ultraviolet uh, lithography, so the, the most advanced process nodes to, 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 to create the GPUs used with NVIDIA. NVIDIA doesn't build their own GPUs. They, uh, you know, work with TSMC, which is in Taiwan. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, that's where they're built. And so again, you know, I'm just thinking about fault tolerance of the system. And right now our supply chain for AI hardware is absolutely not fault tolerant and might be co-opted by totalitarian leaders from, you know, the CCP, right? Uh, and might cause a major global conflict because of that. So, you know, what, what, what I'm working on is sort of like decentralizing the AI supply chain by fundamentally changing the substrate on which we run generative AI completely, right? Beyond transistor-based compute, beyond digital compute. Um, and, when once you have this fork in the tech tree, there's all sorts of opportunities that pop up for far more energy efficiency, for far more speed, um, and eventually far more density. And that's what we're going after. So we're still kind of in the we're still living our values. It's just we're going after the the much harder problem of hardware engineering yeah, and production. Production is really expensive right now. Uh, model yep. production is very expensive for all the reasons that you listed. And I think that crypto probably crypto cross AI has a lot of potential in the nearer term with like the, the one to end part of this, right? Where you're diffusing the, the capabilities of the model in the same way that, you know, you see open source already doing without uh, crypto. I think like in general, yeah, like the, yeah, this is like a thing, a broad thing that we've talked about a lot, right? Which is like, there is so much work to do to put intelligence into like every corner of the world where it's needed. And you just like the idea that you're going to do that with a few thousand people, at a couple of centralized companies is probably wrong. And I think like, um, yeah, you can do this with APIs, um, but a lot of times you need uh, more privacy than that for your data. Um, uh, maybe you don't have internet connection. There are a number of like constraints that come up in, in the real world that, where you don't want to, to have these, uh, you know, centralized APIs. And I think, yeah, uh, there's, there's kind of a natural uh, uh, balance there. Um, Nathan brought up this paper, I think, uh, this, this DeepMind paper, right? Which is, um, they, they recently came out with uh, some innovation in uh, uh, doing, you know, kind of like uh, distributed training, some kind of federated learning scheme. I think it's probably worth emphasizing the main problem here right now, which is just the, the, the network latency, uh, as, as Guillaume said. Um, I don't think anyone has figured this out. Uh, as far as I know, nobody, nobody has solved this problem, making it cost effective. And I think it's probably worth underscoring um, that, yeah, right. So if it takes, let's say like a hundred days to train a frontier model, uh, if you are off by a factor of two or five or 10, uh, in your distributed scheme, that's pretty much kills it. Like it's a really long horizon. By the time you finish, it will already be not state of the art anymore. Right. Yeah. And so yeah. this is, this is really problematic. Uh, I think it's also just about the, the, uh, the, the, the deep mind paper, uh, it's like using data parallelism, which a lot of people have figured out. I think BitTensor figured this out. But yeah. you also need model parallelism. You need to shard the model over nodes. And yeah. It just, it, yeah. But you're, you're screwed, right? If you can't fit the whole model in one computer that you can, you know, plug into a wall outlet and not have to have a home nuclear power plant, like it's really hard to do 
model parallelism, or it's hard, it's impossible to do data, data parallelism. And if you're doing for, for a big enough model, and if you're doing a uh, 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 model parallelism over the network, you're also screwed from the, you know, uh, interconnect. And so, you know, kind of like salt, like creating the hardware substrate that's going to allow for decentralized AI, we have to solve from first principles, how to increase the density of intelligence in space time, in terms of space, time and energy from the first principles of physics. And that's sort of like what we're, what we're building, what we're trying to enable. So, you know, like that's why, that's why I think like if there are a decentralized crypto protocols of all, all sorts, if we have the best AI hardware that has the highest density and, and runs most energy efficiently, obviously it's, it's, it's in our, uh, you know, we will have a lot of customers, right? Similarly, we could be the NVIDIA for, for Ethereum in that case. Right. Um, we don't, again, we don't have a crypto protocol, uh, but. Uh, I think that, uh, that's, that's a very hard problem. You need to assemble a team that's basically like a Manhattan project like team. Um, and you know, we came from Google X, Google quantum, AWS quantum, uh, you know, all sorts of, uh, institutions, IBM, uh, you know, uh, Google meta, et cetera. And we assembled quite the team and, you know, we're going after like the hardest problem in AI right now. Uh, which is like, how do you embed AI into the physical processes of the world the most efficiently, right? So you got to really understand the duality between physics and AI, right? And that's what we're, that's what we're after. Um, and so it's kind of like, to me, that seems like, you know, okay, I would love for there to be a protocol that is competitive right now, but we need to solve for the density of compute first. Look, maybe George builds crazy boxes that are, water cooled and you use like two plugs in your house and maybe that's just enough to run certain models. That's great. Um, I think, I think we need to go much further. I think there's orders, there's still orders of magnitude to go in terms of energy efficiency and density for, um, for AI, for, for compute, especially for AI. Right. Um, and, uh, that's what we're solving. Yeah. Wait, but so what, what, I, what is this? I have to drop what is that mysterious? I just oh, wanted okay. to say thanks for coming on the podcast, but you guys continue the conversation. Thanks so much. All right, cheers. cheers. Guillaume, I have to ask, what is the hardware though? I mean, are you going to bring quantum computers to market doing AI? I mean, I have it's to ask quantum computing. Okay. <laughs> it's definitely not quantum computing. Okay. Yeah, we all got jaded uh, by quantum computing being kind of like nuclear fusion. You know, the timelines are very long. Um, you know, fundamentally, a quantum computer, you have to cool it to absolute zero, ideally. Yep. Uh, that's obviously physically impossible. And so what you have to do is, is this process called quantum error correction, right? So you, you have to identify faults from, you know, the universe jiggling and screwing up your computer, the computer's operation, and you got to identify faults and filter them out. So you're pumping entropy. So it's basically a fridge, right? But this sort of algorithm that is your fridge occupies like 99.9999, you know, well, not that many nines, but quite a few nines of, 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 of your computation, right? Overall, uh, and to me, that seems very inefficient. Um, and, you know, uh, a lot of us were kind of full stack architects or engineers, the software, the hardware, and, and, and the compilers for quantum computing. And we look at the roadmaps, we look how long it would take, and we kind of got depressed to some extent. And so a lot of us were like, actually, you know, maybe there's ways to use this noise uh, instead of it being a hindrance. And so, you know, we set out to do a different type of physics-based computing that is not quantum mechanical, uh, that is specifically focused on generative AI, right? Uh, and for now, we kind of got our hand uh, forced uh, 
uh, with this whole doxing situation. So, you know, we're going to be still nebulous about what exactly it is we're doing. Um, but, you know, we have quite a few scientific publications in preparation, right? Um, so, but yeah, overall, you know, we think there's a different path forward, a fundamentally new way to compute. Uh, it's going to be like quantum computing, uh, but uh, a new type of physics-based computing. Um, and ultimately, we learned a lot from quantum computing uh, in terms of how to program, have, how to have programmable matter, uh, how to have, how to integrate, uh, you know, these sort of physical systems into a deep learning program. You know, that's what we pioneered with, uh, you know, the software I did at Google uh, with uh, my CTO now, Trevor. Uh, we did TensorFlow Quantum, right? Um, and so now it's about uh, how to uh, really have programmable matter and, and figure out the tightest embedding of AI in the physical world, which is exactly what the doomers fear most. Uh, and so, you know, as a joke, we kind of say, uh, Bayes, for example, uh, is one of our principal FOOM engineers. Um, and, uh, we just announced that today that, um, Bayes is part of the team. Um, and, uh, you know, ultimately I think that there is no path forward where, um, you know, the, the ultimate form of AI isn't built. Uh, and I think that, you know, we could talk about like human augmentation and sort of the, the transhumanist path forward. Uh, I'm very bullish on that. And I, I would love to, you know, find ways to fund more efforts and sort of like human machine collaboration and augmentation. Um, but uh, yeah, overall, like, you know, the EAC thesis has always been like, hey, I, you know, I don't think like banning GPUs is going to do much. The tech tree is going to mutate around whatever your restrictions are and is going to adapt similar to a virus kind of mutating. The techno capital machine just finds a way. It's kind of a system that's almost alive, right? Um, uh, you know, it, it's always like, and it's entropy seeking, it's exploring all sorts of configurations and it finds one that allows it to grow. Um, and, you know, might as well build it and try to make it a uh, technology that's, you know, helping humanity uh, scale, right? Our goal with EAC and really with the technologies we're building at our company uh, is to enable sort of AI, uh, the ability to perceive, predict, and control our world, uh, you know, at all scales, including the nanoscale, uh, such that we can, you know, tackle the real problems that are in the way for us to scale to Kardashev type one, which is a scale of civilization in terms of its uh, energetic expenditure. You know, it's kind of like, to us, it's like the ultimate denomination of like societal progress is like the Kardashev scale because every other measure like GDP or like it's based on dollars, you know, you can like fudge the numbers, right? It's not anchored in like physical reality. And similarly, sort of our, our cultural uh, thesis is that, you know, you should evaluate your actions in terms of like, how do you think it's going to contribute to the growth of, of civilization down the line? Um, rather than sort of like subjective uh, measures of utility, like hedons, right? Hedonism, like how much pleasure is this uh, giving people on average, uh, which leads to kind of spurious optima, like, you know, wireheading or TikTok and whatnot. Um, so yeah. Um, you've got me in total suspense though, Guillaume. It's, if it's non-transistor based computing, you've got me thinking what the hell it could be. Yeah. But, uh, I'm guessing. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're working on it. We, we still have to remain somewhat secretive. Um, and, uh, I guess there's gonna be a lot of interest now. Again, we want to be in stealth until we, 
uh, had uh, more to say, more to release. But for now, we we're, we're keeping things uh, pretty close to the chest. But I think there's certain discoveries that you make that you know you're like, okay, I don't, I don't think I'm going to be able to unsee this. And if I saw it, someone else will see it. And I, we should just move as fast as possible to bring this forth. Um, and for us, it's like, okay, how do we make this the most impactful to the advancement of my, mankind? Like, let's tackle the actually hard, the hardest problems that most people don't dare to tackle. Um, and you know, it, it takes some, takes some courage there. Uh, it takes some fanaticism to some extent. I, it, I think to me, the fact that we have this framework of EAC, it's, it's a really powerful motivator, right? It's like, what am I contributing to, right? Like we're kind of in a, well, you know, I, I went through a sort of whole phase of, you know, I grew up Catholic and then I was a, not a Reddit atheist, but I was a typical atheist, studied math in undergrad and then went through a nihilist phase. But then I think like understanding that the whole system is seeks growth and entropy production and, and that's kind of the, the way things are. And that, that process is what created life civilization and the technologies we enjoy, like, okay, we want to contribute to that. So, so having the knowledge that you're contributing to something greater than yourself gives you that sort of like infinite dopamine well to grind through the long nights, to skip the holiday dinners, to just file more IP, right? Like, and, and put in the hours. And, uh, you know, I, I think like scaling, you know, everybody has their own cultural or religious framework that, that provides utility to them for us, you know, for e the EAC community. I think, I think it has had utility for a lot of people to get out of this sort of nihilistic, uh, rut, uh, that they were in that, you know, the world was going to collapse. There's only doom and gloom. Everything's going to get worse. Put us in charge. We're going to fix it. Maybe, oh, we didn't fix it. It's because you get it. Didn't give us enough power. <laughs> and like, we're just like, you know, it's kind of like, uh, well, you can make parallels to SF politics. I'm in SF right now. Um, get How's that? Such How's that, Guillermo? <laughs> By the way, oh, it's did... it's Night City. I love it here. Uh, you know, uh, it's 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 truly Night City. I, I like to say our office is in Arasaka Tower. Uh, so we went with this sort, sort of cyberpunk vibe. Um, it's it's very much like uh, Night City, the video game, right? Um, no, but it, you, you see the sort of like if you let the D cells in charge and you let the movie play out this is what you get, right? Um, you know, you get, and, and, and D cells are kind of, uh, uh, um, like they have much more power if they're attached or in control of, of something that's very prosperous, right? And, and generating a lot of value, like similar to big tech, right? Uh, you know, there's money printers and, and, and then these sort of uh, uh, folks that seek power kind of take, o take over. Uh, but you know, they, they can, they can cause a lot of damage. And I think, I think there's a, there, there's a cultural turning point and hopefully, you know, it doesn't matter if you're Republican or Democrat, like having people that are anti-tech progress, anti-tech first solutions and, um, you know, uh, sheathing themselves in, in under the cover of virtue to gain more power and doing things out of self-interest and, and, and LARPing that it's for the good of, of many, um, you know, I think people have had a, enough of that and are ready for a change. And, um, you know, of course, like as technologists, like we propose technological solutions, but ultimately like, like we believe in the power of technology. We believe in people having agency and not accepting that this is just how the way things are. You got to accept how they are. Things are just going to get worse. 
you know, screw your dreams, kid, uh, just accept it and give up. Right. And it's like, no, fuck you. We're not, we're, we're going to, we're going to make the better future happen. We have agency we can build, get the heck out of our way. You know, we're going to make the, the better future we want. And you need a sort of like, fuck you optimism. Right. Um, and that's, that's EAC in a nutshell. Uh, and, um, Hopefully it keeps growing because, you know, that we think that's what's, that's what the world needs in, in many ways. Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully we can accelerate SF and then we can accelerate uh, the rest of the world. So can I ask you one follow up? And then Nathan, I know you want to sure. jump in and I want to give you time to jump in. Um, but, but I did want to follow on one question that you mentioned. You, you mentioned you raised Catholic. I was also raised Catholic. I eventually converted to Judaism and kind of rejected this, this, this sort of default secular modernity of society. That's a whole other story we've done a bunch of episodes on. I, I do think, you know, it's one of my pet theories that religion never goes away. It only gets, it's almost like, you know, energy or momentum. It only gets sort of transformed and you get sort of worse, worse, crappier versions of it. Yep. Um, yep. The reality is you can't actually, you can't actually navigate the world without a sense of metaphysics of some form. Mm. And in fact, if you don't have an explicit metaphysics, you can't even do empiricism well, because then you have to change reality to, to sort of suit metaphysical ends. I mean, the site, the COVID example, in which they denied the lab origin hypothesis because it serves some metaphysical end. And so they stopped being able to do empiricism uh, as well as they could have. They could have, you know, and then that whole COVID story, if there wasn't actually a way to have a conversation about do we save the kids or and screw the old people or vice versa, like you couldn't have that conversation. So instead yeah. it was about the science, but really it was, it was a moral conversation that nobody could have because we weren't all morally or even religiously on the same page. That's a whole separate conversation. But I, I do think it's interesting. And I, I do think it's one of the things that's a little bit lacking in tech. I mean, you see these homespun religions, like I would say Burning Man is a little bit culty. Yep. Startups are obviously a little culty. Um, not, and I'm not saying this is a bad thing, by the way, it's just, no, it's, it's just, yeah, I know it's a good thing, but it's, it's a little incomplete, right. In the sense mm -hmm. that like, well, it doesn't quite tell me how to raise my kids or, you know, mm -hmm. who I should marry. Um, so I, I don't know if, and I, I know I'm putting you on the spot a little bit to like, no, give no, me the work. gospel, bro. But sure. like what, you know, yeah, what, what would be, and direct me to a set of writing if there is one, but like, what would be the EAC gospel or like that, you know, what is the, the, the true, the, the good and the beautiful in this world, other than obviously building for building's sake, which I think we all get. What, yeah. what is the bigger picture? Yeah. So, so at a high level, right, EAC is all about figuring out whatever sort of cultural framework yields um, the maximal expected growth and scope and scale of civilization. And we don't want to be prescriptive. All we're giving is a loss function. And you can have your own hyperparameter settings. You're, you're like, okay, I have a cultural heuristic. I think this is an optimum of this sort of loss function. This is how I want to, you know, do things within my tribe here. It's essentially a sort of like, think of like a, a very thin framework from which you can have like subcultures, right? And, you know, the idea is to have sort of culture be more or less like, like code, like on GitHub, you can kind of you can have a base framework and then you can add kind of commandments or add things you believe, or you can diff it, right? You can make forks and you can kind of keep track. Uh, and so we've seen, for example, you know, Vitalik forked Yak and, and made some changes, right? And, and then he's like, this is what I believe, right? Um, so really, you know, EAC is sort of a meta-cultural framework. We don't prescribe, we don't prescribe too much. We try to prescribe the minimum, uh, but to us, it's very clear that the, the engine that keeps progress going, uh, maintaining the sanctity of its sort of momentum and, you know, maintaining malleability, adaptability, and so on, is it's crucial to maintain freedoms and maintain entropy in the system and, and, and accept variance rather than constraining things, uh, crushing entropy, uh, uh, crushing variance. 
because that uh, leads to crystallization and sort of like catastrophic failure. Um, and so at a, you know, at a very meta level, we try to maintain variance in most parameters, but it's not like all variance, no restraint, uh, because that, that just doesn't work, right? It's, it's kind of like, uh, running, uh, a system at very high temperature. It's just pure disorder. So it's kind of always about finding the optimum balance between order and, and disorder. So between entropy seeking behavior, uh, and, and novelty seeking and sort of constraint and conservatism. Um, and so we don't have any one particular prescription of how to live your life, but some people like to make forks and have more particular uh, prescriptions. And to us, it seems at least my personal thesis on how cultures get kind of mimetically post-selected for it's like whichever culture either confers its adherence, uh, and a, a better ability to grow, or if a culture is more sort of viral, then it's going to be more likely to exist. That's just like by probability theory. Um, and so, you know, to us, it's like, okay, if we have this sort of metacultural framework, people have all sorts of forks and all these mimetic, all these uh, mimetic forks with different parameter settings can compete uh, in, the, in a sort of cultural setting. But we should explore the space of cultures and heuristics of, of how to live your life. So for example, another uh, a uh, friend of ours is is uh, Brian Johnson, and he has his own life heuristics, and he's trying to create his own cultural framework, and he has much more prescriptive ways to live your life. And he thinks we should, you know, lifespan should be much longer than what it is, and you should have, you know, longevity as a priority, right? Um, and so uh, I'm I'm all for this sort of renaissance of exploring all sorts of neo religions, neo. Uh, uh, cultural frameworks for how to live your life. I think it's much needed because otherwise sort of parasitic, you know, mind viruses like the ones we've seen do all sorts of damage uh, recently, uh, including the D-cell class of mind viruses. Uh, <laughs> uh, we, that's a whole category. Uh, yeah, they, they come in and they kind of like, like you said, kind of uh, uh, fill in uh, this, this gap uh, in, in, in people's uh, hearts, if you will. Um, so, so I think we're on the same page and I think, uh, you know, much more, you know, Lindy religions, right? Like in a sense, like that have been around for a long time, like they're very robust, right? It's like a, it's like a code base that <laughs> has been <laughs> through hell, you know, and back and like, it's just, it's very robust, right? It's been robustified over a long time. And by the proof that it's lasted a long time, it's, it's a good heuristic. So, you know, that's great. Uh, but I think like some people want kind of, uh, you know, modern variants, right? And and they want to contribute to shaping new subcultures. And uh, so we so we encourage people to to form subcultures. So so really, we're kind of like only setting the hyper hyper parameters of the whole thing, and 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 people can set like more finer grain uh, fine tunings of how they want to live their lives. Uh, so there's no one way to go about it. But you know, we do talk a lot about building because we think that obviously fundamentally, like technol building technology is a very high leverage way to use your time on earth to impact the, the future scope and scale of civilization, right? Um, and so, you know, encouraging one another and helping one another in building technologies that have a positive impact, like we think that's a good heuristic that should be in most, you know, forks. Uh, and so, so we encourage that. Some people think that's the only message, but it's not, right? It came from kind of a higher level uh, thinking, but um, yeah. Cool. Well, you're in, I think you're in the right city for exploring religions. I mean, the way I see San Francisco, it's, it's really, it's a Petri dish for literally exploring every weird ass thing that society wants to do, whether it be yep. autonomous vehicles, 
whatever weird computation you're cooking up with, not having rule of law, for example, psychedelic, <laughs> psychedelic drugs, whatever, bring it. We're gonna, it's going to be cooked up here and then from here expand and diffuse whether we like it or not to the rest of the world. But I want to let Nathan in. I know he's probably been biting his tongue this entire time. And I think I'm the last host left standing. And so <laughs> I'm going to invite Nathan to, to go ahead and comment and, and provide maybe the other side of it if, if he wants to. I mean, my angle on the whole thing is I, I describe myself as an AI scout. And right. I'm getting more and more, uh, putting more and more emphasis on let's really try to figure out what is today, what exists, what can be done with it. You know, if we are going to extrapolate, can we extrapolate, first of all, in a high confidence way into the short term and then use those discussions as kind of the foundation for figuring out what we should do about the bigger picture questions where I think inherently there's a lot more uncertainty. And one thing I haven't really heard from you guys, and I've pieced a little bit of it together from Twitter, but I don't have a great sense of like, what are your near term expectations? Like, do you think we are headed for AGI in the next couple of years? You know, Metaculus has it at like just over two years. The leaders of Anthropic, for example, say that the leading developers in 25, 26 timeframe may create such a lead that no one will ever catch them. Are you kind of in that same headspace of thinking that we're going to see pretty radical transformation on just a few year timescale is like my very first question. Yeah. First of all, I, I don't like the term AGI that much. I think it's human level AI or human like AI. Um, I think like calling AGI general intelligence, like uh, human like AI that was distilled from human generated data. Um, I think that's like very anthropocentric. Uh, and I think, you know, I work in physics-based AI, you know, inspired by physics and to understand the physical world. I've, I've done so for 10 plus years now. Um, I think that uh, intelligence is a much more general concept than uh, just human-like intelligence. And frankly, I, I'm, I'm not scared of FOOM because, you know, again, I've worked on AI for engineering matter, drugs, simulations, biology, all sorts of stuff. Um, it's much harder than people think. Uh, I do think it is disruptive for our economy based, you know, our knowledge economy of sort of, uh, human like white collar intelligence. I think there's a, there's still going to be a 10 year gap, uh, for, uh, physical intelligence, right? Robotics. I think, uh, you know, our motor, motor intelligence is much harder. It takes many more parameters. It took, you know, billions of years to evolve rather than, I guess, like, I don't know, a hundred million, uh, uh, for the neocortex, um, probably got those numbers wrong, but it's ballpark. Um, but, uh, yeah, essentially I think, uh, I think there might be a disruption to our economy, but I, I do think that, uh, people will adapt. Uh, people will learn to augment themselves, uh, out of self-interest. Right. And it's like, where, where will the system go? Every corporation is going to do what's in their best self-interest. They're going to maybe be 80% AI, 20% human. And each human is going to be augmented and, and control a fleet of AIs, right. That are, doing its bidding. Um, and that's okay. Maybe the human employees become the control systems, uh, for a fleet of AI to do most of the work, right? They're, maybe they become more kind of like the capital allocators or the executives of companies that are mostly AI for the execution layer, right? Maybe that's the future. Um, I think we're heading towards interesting times, but I don't think there's going to be cataclysmic 
effect. I don't think it's going to end humanity. I think we're going to adapt and the system will adapt. And the sort of EAC is all about the, in the main, like it's a faith and, 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 and sort of uh, worship of this adaptation of the homo techno capital mimetic machine, the whole thing, right? Like memes, technology, capital, humans, it's all coupled. It's all adapting. It's always shifting. It's all, the only constant is that it's always changing and it should be always changing and it seeks to grow. Right. Um, and so, you know, we have a faith that the system will adapt. It might be abrupt. Um, and so, you know, personally, I'm not trying to, uh, Personally, I'd rather augment humans in, in orthogonal directions to human-like intelligence rather than try to replace human-like intelligence. Obviously, in an economy that's already shaped to take in human you know, intellectual labor and, and, and do all sorts of uh, produce products, like you know, having human-like AI is what's going to grow the fastest. So that's what's being built first. But I'm already pricing in AGI personally. And the technologies we're building in hardware and software all assume there's probably going to be a human-like AI human level AI within two to three to five years. Right. And that's been priced in for me, right. And mentally. Um, and it's like, now what, what's the next thing? Right. And to us, it's like, we're going to seek to grok and perceive, predict and control matter out of, at, at the nanoscale. Right. And then we're going to, you know, we're going to seek to, again, increase the density of intelligence in terms of the substrate. That's what we're working on. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I think, yeah, like I, I think it's coming. I don't think it's going to be cataclysmic, but I think that people should start preparing uh, and start integrating their business processes, integrating their personal uh, life and their personal workflow with AI, right? There's going to be the class of sort of the tech forward people that embrace AI and, and sort of do well, right? They integrate with it and those that refuse to use it that don't do so well, right? Uh, but, but the important thing is that if people get to own a piece of the system in which they're contributing, at least they own a piece of the future as it grows. Whereas if they, there's only centralized players from which you, you, you have to pay rent constantly and maybe they'll give you a sprinkle of UBI at the end, uh, that seems pretty dystopian to me. So that's the future we're trying to prevent. Uh, I don't think the disruption can be stopped at this point. It's, it's coming and it's the only question is like, Who's going to own the future? I think it's well, a lot like more questions to, than that, actually. But, okay. um, <laughs> I, I'm going to have do, to hop too, but yeah. I, I, I think you need to go. Can I ask you one last question? It literally is sure. a 30-second thing, sure, by sure, the sure. way. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of my employees, he was digging up some of your old videos. He, he saw that you had a 405-pound bench <laughs> PR. Is that actually true? Yeah, yeah. Because he yeah, was very impressed there. by that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. I mean, I, was, I, played fo I played college ball, college football. Uh, I have a friend uh, who's a doctor in the NFL, uh, played with him, a great friend. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I just kept lifting after football. And, um, you know, to me, it's just been like I was a mathematician and I was a powerlifter. And to me, it's just like uh, engineering uh, signals uh, in order to have neural adaptation. And it's all one and the same. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the Beth Jesus character, it's all about mind and body. And, you know, I, I, I do like to cultivate strength and, uh, you know, push, push myself to the, to the limits to some extent. And yeah, that, that is a, I'll just post the video if you want, <laughs> I'll tweet it. Well he, yeah. um, well, he found it. I have no idea how he found it on Vimeo, but I'm impressed because, you know, a lot of this, um, transhumanism business is very agnostic. 
and kind of denying the physical, but you're actually embracing it. Anyway, that's also other conversation. Th thanks for making time. I'm going to have to hop off. I assume everything will upload when we all hop off. I'm not sure what ha Erica's never disappeared before, so I literally have no idea what's going to happen. Great. All right, to all be right, continued, guys. guys. And Guillaume, I travels. Yeah, definitely to be continued. And Guillaume, one of these days I want to talk crypto and AI with you when you're over the whole hump of fundraising and all that stuff. Yeah. Because um, I've been thinking about this whole thing for a long time, and I'm very yeah, I'm I'm Let's impressed. Let's Okay, cool, awesome, man. All right, see you guys. Cheers. Upstream with Eric Tornberg is a show from Turpentine, the podcast network behind Moment of Zen and Cognitive Revolution. If you like the episode, please leave a review in the Apple Store.